Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. In the American South, there are state borders, variations in topography and accents, and there's the Nat Line. That's the fall line where the Piedmont meets the coastal plain. It's actually the sandy soil south of that line where these pesky little critters live out their short lives, but they also have a penchant for flying into noses and eyes. Larry Walker has also thrived below that line. His new book, Tales from Georgia's Natline, is a series of essays about life in the Deep South, a part of the United States that, in his words, was and is somewhat different from the rest. It's also about his experience serving for three decades in the Georgia General Assembly and House of Representatives. He's on the line with us now from Perry. Hello, Larry. Good morning, good morning. Well, you describe Perry, Georgia, in a speech as Mayberry with an attitude. What's its attitude? Well, it's a winter attitude. It's always been a winter town, had outstanding basketball, boys basketball, good people, good people running things, the same people that ran the churches, uh, ran the schools, and ran the city government. So it's been a good place to live. Uh, I wouldn't want to live anywhere but Perry. Well, it was a place rich with characters. You write about Jerry Dutrix Horton and George Big Hoss Johnson and hanging out in front of you. One of your grandparents had a small store, rural store. The others were cotton farmers. And you remember being at your grandfather's store and how infrequently cars pulled up. Your other grandparents didn't even have electricity. You had to pretty much entertain yourself. And there's a chapter in the book called Wishing Boredom on My Grandchildren. Why? What did being bored teach you? I spent a lot of time in Washington County with my Walker grandparents, and they killed hogs, and they made syrup, and they uh, made uh, soap in the wash pot, and they uh, went to the sawmill and got slabs. That's the size of trees that were cut off that were not fit for lumber to burn in the stove to cook and to heat. And I'm very, very grateful of, of that. Uh, they had tenants living on the place, and I liked the tenants very much. In fact, two of the older boys were kind of my heroes. And so I got to taste that and see how it used to be and Many people in my generation did not get that, and I'm thankful that I did. We didn't have toys, and we didn't have uh, television to watch, and we didn't have these uh, games that you hold in your hand to play, and we had to do things, and we were pretty much uh, left our own devices to, to play and to do the things we wanted to do. And a lot of times we're spending dirt roads, uh, making toady frog stews with your hand, and some of the older people will understand that, and, and we're in creeks and, and trying to catch fish in creeks. We did mudding. Mudding is what we called it. You'd muddy up the water, and the fish would come to the top, and, and it was just a carefree time. And I think that, again, it has, has had a big effect on what I am today, good or bad. Uh, but I thoroughly enjoyed that, and am glad I was exposed to that. But it's also a book about history, and I wonder if you could read a little bit from the preamble about what was King Cotton. I, I certainly will. Uh, th- this book is, is about the South, and often when you're writing about the South, you really, it's really about cotton, even when the word cotton is not mentioned. 
talk about tenant farmers and mules, and really most of that writing involves cotton. Talk about the Civil War, and cotton is certainly involved as a primary cause of the war. Truly, cotton was king in my South. When you have the power and the money, and the two must always go together, you don't easily give it up. And so it was in the South. If you had the cotton and you could get it gathered and sold, you'd have the money and the power, and those who had it didn't easily give it up. The South has paid for this and continues to pay, but it's not as bad as it used to be, and maybe during my children's lifetimes, the debt will be paid. Well, that debt looms very large over the South's economy and history and, and, and sense of legacy, I think. In 2001, you argued to change Georgia's flag on the floor of the House. The flag had been dominated by a Confederate emblem. It was Governor Roy Barnes who asked you to speak. Why did he choose you? Well, I think I was the rural legislator, non-metro legislator. I wasn't actually rural. I was from Houston County, but I was non-metro, and they needed somebody to bring some of the rural and non-metro legislators along. And uh, as a consequence of that, I went to the well of the House and made a speech about changing the flag. If you look at it today, you might say, well, it's pretty conservative. It was, but bear in mind that my job was to try to get some of the rural, non-metro legislators to vote to change the flag. And within the last few months, Governor Barnes told me that I changed, uh, he actually said, over 20 votes. Hmm. Uh, I doubt that I changed that many. That was mighty flattering to me, and I appreciated it, but I know I did change some. We needed 91 to pass it in the House, and we had 93 or 94, and it was a real, real uh, electrifying day. I've never seen anything like it, never saw anything like it in the 32 years that I served, uh, and, and it, was a, it was a good thing. And incidentally, even now, uh, the Mississippi flag is in controversy uh, in, I think, New Jersey, They've taken it out of a park where they have all of the state flags and have done it in other places, and I just think it was the thing to do. The time had come. I love the South. I love so many things about the South. I told them, I, I started my speech by saying, in a sea of Southern draws, mine is probably the most pronounced. Hmm. And it was. And uh, But I, I think that was a, a very big economic thing and, and a, big, a very good big the right thing to do moment when we change the flag. Well, your full speech is in the book, but that is a topic that often comes up in discussions about the South. And in your book, you say it's never been easy to be a Southerner, black or white, but it's worth holding on to and we must. And you were one of few men from Perry who traveled to Selma, Alabama in 1963. Then you went back again 50 years later in 2013. How did your perception of the civil rights movement change when you walked across that Edmund Pettus Bridge? Well, my feeling was we've come a long way. We've come a long way. Uh, That goes for the white race and the black race. The the white race and being more receptive and being more uh, conscious of of the right thing to do, the black race and, and having more opportunities. And that's what I thought about when I crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge uh, a few years ago, and, and uh, it, interesting, I left uh, Perry uh, 
with three other guys to go to Fort Worth, Texas and work in a steel mill. We ate lunch in Selma, Alabama, June 11, 2000, I mean, June 11, 1963. Uh, that was the day that George Wallace stood in the schoolhouse door in Tuscaloosa. We went on and spent the night in Meridian, Mississippi. That was the night that Byron D. LeBeck was shot and killed Medgar Evers, and we went through Jackson, Mississippi the next morning. There was not an interstate system. We went right through the downtown, and there was there was demonstrations in the streets. We went on, and we lived right off the TCU, TCU campus where we worked at Texas Steel, and another person lived right off the TCU campus. Whether we ever saw him or not, I do not know named Lee Harvey Oswald. Hmm. Well, that's the kind of situation we had in the South in 1963. Certainly it's infinitely better today. You wrote about whether or not the debt that the South owes will ever be paid. What do you think you and your lifetime, and even in the tales you tell in this book, do you think that contributes to payment of this debt? I do think it contributes to the payment. And, uh, the South was always, it was, an ag, it was an agrarian economy. It was based on agriculture. The North, uh, which was the developing part of the country in the 1800s, and the North was an industrial society, and as a consequence, they, in many ways, were ahead of the South. Uh, and, and when you say an agricultural economy, it was an agricultural economy dominated by the people that owned the land, the plantation owners. Uh, and we've always been a little bit behind, but I'm extremely proud of what's happened in the South. And you look at Atlanta, Georgia. It's a very, it's a very, very sophisticated metropolitan city, and and so much of Georgia is that way today. So I think we're getting there. I, I, I really do. The Nat line is actually an imaginary line, but you do borrow a term from your fellow state rep, Marcus Collins, who said, we never get any money south of the Nat line. What do you think most needs attention? Well, Marcus was a big burly farmer from Camilla, from actually from Mitchell County, I don't think, Cotton, Georgia is what he called home, a, a big farmer, and he was also chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, which is one of the most important committees in the House. He and Joe Frank Harris and I were good friends, and Joe Frank at that time was chairman of the uh, of the uh, Appropriations Committee, and Marcus was uh, constantly telling and Joe Frank, we don't ever get any money south of the Nat line. And Joe Frank was very calm and never got upset and showed it, uh, but this particular day he, he became irritated with that, and he said, Marcus, exactly where is the Nat line? And Marcus said, it's that line we don't ever get any money south of. <laughs> and, uh, we have, you know, we do have two Georgias. We probably have more than two. We have several Georgias, but certainly South Georgia, much of South Georgia is a, is a, is, is not economically as, uh, viable and, and, uh, is not doing as well as other parts of the state of Georgia. You were elected as a representative in 1973 when Jimmy Carter was governor. He, along with Muhammad Ali and Mickey Mantle, are among the 10 conversations that you remember. What was memorable about that conversation with the man from Plains, Georgia? Well, in, in his last year, being a young, Jimmy Carter was not in with the establishment in the legislature. As a consequence, he used young legislators, I would like to thank young, bright legislators, 
to help him with his program. So I was a friend of the of the governor's, and uh, during his last year, the latter part of the session, I went into his office and was having a nice conversation with him. And I said, Governor, what you what are you going to do when your term is up? And he said, I'm going to run for president. And in all innocence, I said, president of what? <laughs> I could not imagine that anybody from Georgia would think they could get elected president of the United States, but he certainly proved me wrong. I'm speaking with Perry resident and longtime state, state representative Larry Walker about his new book. It's called Tales from Georgia's Natline. It's a series of short chapters and essays about life that was and is in rural Georgia. We're going to end this segment with Ray Charles, Georgia on my mind. And you were one of the representatives in Georgia's state house to make it or to advocate for it to be the official state song. So a lot of exciting things happened in my 32 years in the Georgia House of Representatives. But the most exciting thing that ever happened was when Ray Charles, who just a few years earlier would not even even been allowed to go on the floor of the house, Ray Charles came and. Hoagie Carmichael, who wrote the song, was in in uh, Hollywood, California, and there was a hookup with him, and he talked, and that was a big thing, too. And Ray Charles played and sang Georgia On My Mind, and we adopted it as the official state song. I think it's the biggest bang for the buck economically of anything we did in my 32 years in the General Assembly. Larry Walker, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. I enjoyed it. That's former state representative, now author Larry Walker. His new book, Tales from Georgia's Natline, is out. And we're going to leave you, as we said, with a little bit of Georgia on My Mind by Ray Charles. Georgia. Georgia. The whole day through Just an old sweet song From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Each year around Mother's Day, Michelle Philgate braces herself for the affectionate photos and social media tributes to mothers. It's not for lack of wanting to see women celebrated, but the painful awareness of her own strained relationship with her mother. That void deepened when the author and literary critic published an essay entitled What My Mother and I Don't Talk About, about serial abuse by her stepfather and her mother's denial of it. It's also the title of a new collection of personal essays by 15 contemporary writers about the often complex yet fundamental relationships with their mothers. Michelle Philgate is editor of What My Mother and I Don't Talk About, and she's joining us from New York City. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Virginia. Well, you did start writing about sexual and verbal abuse from your stepfather. This was a decade before it was actually published by Longreads in 2017. When did that shift to being really about your mother? Yeah, well, it was actually over a decade ago when I started writing that essay. I was an undergraduate at the University of New Hampshire at the time. And when I first started writing the essay, I really thought that it was about my stepfather abusing me. And it came from a place of 
anger and resentment at that time and kind of still figuring out what I had been through because it wasn't long after having these experiences. It took me many years of therapy and um, coming into my own as a writer to realize that the real story here was about the longing a daughter has to connect with her mother and the ramifications of abuse and the fracture that that caused in our relationship. Mm. So that's why it took me so long to finish this essay. Well, I follow you on Facebook and remember very well how terrifying it was for you to put it out there and then how enthusiastically it was received. So how did you go from there to this, editing a book all about those unspoken things? Yeah, well, I feel like it's because this book is very much a book of the moment, even though I feel like it will be a book that will matter for a long time as well. But it's a book that came out of this specific moment we're in. The essay was published in October of 2017, right when the Me Too movement started to take off. Mm -hmm. And so it couldn't have been better timing. And I feel like it was in that moment when people started to break these silences um, and people started to really pay attention to stuff that's been going around us for forever. Um, and so that the essay went viral. A lot of my favorite writers shared it on social media, like Anne Lamott and Lydia Yuknovich and Rebecca Solnit. Um, and I started hearing from a bunch of strangers, too, who really related to my essay. But one thing that really um, I noticed right away was that so many people were responding to the title, What My Mother and I Don't Talk About. I heard from so many people who said, I have my own story to tell. And it wasn't just about abuse. There were, you know, there are so many things that people can't talk about with their mother for whatever reason. And it might be that their mother is no longer around and they, they regret something that they never got to talk about with them. It might be that they still have a relationship with their mom and there's just something that goes unsaid that stays there, mm. that lodges there and and um, can become toxic because it's kept inside. And, and so I really wanted to break these silences, yeah. all kinds of silences. Um, and some of the writers in this book are very close with their mothers. And so I have a, a bunch of different experiences reflected here. Yeah. And they, they don't, let's say they don't read like Hallmark cards, but I do want to be yeah. clear. It's not all about pain and estrangement. And, and, and silence is not always about shame or fear of response or lack of response. For Alexander Chi, it was a wish to shield his mother from pain. What was he protecting her from? He was trying to protect her from the fact that he was abused as a choir boy, as a child. And so that in, in, in doing that, he was trying to think of his mother's best interest. But silence, as we see in that essay, is not a good thing for Alex either, because there's a cost of keeping something like that to yourself, hmm. the burden of carrying that kind of shame around with you. In the case of Juliana Baggett, she grew up with a mother who overshared. Uh, in fact, she became kind of the repository of her mother's stories of a Southern Gothic family. And her essay is called Nothing Left Unsaid. How does she reflect on that relationship? She That essay is wonderful. Uh, she talks about how her, her mother tells her everything. She became her mother confessed everything to her. Mm. So that's an interesting case of what happens when you have a mother who tells you everything and how does that affect your relationship with her? Yeah. It's a beautiful, heartfelt, really funny essay. I love that one so much. Well, and she realizes her grandmother had her mother when she was just 17. Her grandfather was a pool hall hustler who couldn't read or write. There's, there's, there's often a, 
a kind of regret or, or uh, maybe say empathy of coming to realize their mother's own pain or limitations that they were really doing the best they could. There, there's there's no criticism here. In fact, it, for her, it's like a, a, a flowering of her own imagination. I love that. That's so true. And I think one of the things that this anthology is getting at is that our, our mothers are human beings just like us. And, you know, there's a mythology around the perfect mother. Um, and that's not, you know, as I say in the introduction to this book, our mothers can't possibly check all those boxes. Um, they are they are human like the rest of us. And, and I think our culture focuses and puts so much pressure on mothers to be these perfect human beings. Mm. And Brandon Taylor. He's a wonderful Southern writer. His mother was abusive and did not conform to all this. You know, Southern people are all great storytellers. In fact, she was very silent. Uh, he writes, my family was a series of hushed rages behind shut doors. He grapples with the mystery of his mother. Where, where does he go in this essay? That essay breaks my heart every time I read it. It's so beautiful, though. The What I love about Brandon's essay is here he is writing about an abusive relationship with his mom after she passed away. But he does it with such tenderness. Mm. He really sees her on the page. He lets the reader see her on the page. There's a real beauty to the way he writes about his mom with such tough, difficult circumstances. And I, I'm just in awe of his writing. Mm. He, he asks, uh, his father tells him after his mother dies, you know, she loved you. And, and he asks, what is love if you get it secondhand? <laughs> There's something so heartbreaking about that. I know. I know. That really breaks my heart. Well, what was it, what was it that you were going for when you were looking over these essays? Obviously, the experiences are all very different, but was there a kind of way or theme that, that made them essays that went in the book? Yeah, it was really important to me and to my editor, Karen Marcus at Simon & Schuster, that each essay in this book be a gem. Um, and I feel like the common thread that's connecting all of them is the importance of breaking these silences, whatever silence might mean for each contributor. It was important to me that um, the, the anthology reflected a diversity of voices as well as a diversity of stories and different backgrounds. So we have writers of all ages in this book. Um, we have writers with all kinds of different relationships with their mothers. We are getting real with Michelle Philgate. She's a writer, she's a literary critic, and she's editor of the new anthology, What My Mother and I Don't Talk About. Well, there's there's some things that I see here. You know, we get the kind of childhood logic of this is just the way it is. You know, this is who my mother is. They're often figures of, of, of great wonder to them. Sometimes that rage of the young adult realizing that actually that was really bad parenting. And then acceptance and empathy for, for what limited, flawed human beings they are, as you said. This really comes across in Naomi Munawira's essay. It's called My Body, Her Body. I'm really glad you brought up Naomi's essay because that essay is really special for um, the reason that Naomi writes about um, her growing up with a mentally ill mother and in, and she was in an immigrant family, and she was really nervous about sharing that essay with her mother after she wrote it, but it was important to her to show it to her mom before this book came out, and even before the galley came out. And when her mother read it, she sent her a really amazing email 
telling her that she was proud of her and how this essay was going to help other people. So we actually included that as a postscript um, to Naomi's essay to show that, you know, these essays can actually help heal some relationships as well. Mm-hmm. But how about, you know, like the sort of adaptive ability <laughs> of the people in this book, like she becomes a liar in her life. And in many ways, Brandon Taylor's essay is about writing about his relationship with his mother. Do you feel like that is one of the ways that people cope with the silence is becoming writers? Is that common to them? Absolutely. I know that I became a writer because it was important to break silences. That's something that made me want to be a writer in the first place. And I think a lot of writers are drawn to that, to figuring out the truth on the page. Even if, you know, this is an essay collection, but even if you become a fiction writer as well, it's all about the emotional truth in that, right? So I think writing in general, poetry as well, it is about breaking these silences saying the things that go unsaid, figuring out how to talk about things that are so hard to talk about in real life, you know, confronting them on the page is often where we realize what it is that we're trying to say in the first place, what it is that we carry around inside of us. So that I think silence is one of the main driving forces in why writers write in the first place. What did you find in what these essays said about how the writers themselves parent or want to parent? Oh, well, Lynn Steger Strong's essay um, about not being able to tell her mother that she loves her, which is just so profound, but like that's what she needs to be able to say, I love you. Um, I, I She talks about being a mother in that piece as well, and... So you can see her grappling with how her mother mothered her and how she wants to be a mother. Mm. I was also really struck by Kayase Lehman. He's now based in Mississippi, uh, who yeah. wrote the, the memoir Heavy, and he addressed it to his mother. Yes. Uh, it's about growing up, as he says, a fat black kid. Um, mm-hmm. And his essay in your book, he also writes it to his mother. So it's like, in some ways... Do you think many of these people who wrote this are still wanting to tell their story to their mother? Absolutely. In some ways, it's much easier to say that on the page rather than face-to-face, right? Mm-hmm. So I think this these are attempts to communicate with the moms. I think of also Melissa Phoebos' essay in this book, which deals with looking at her relation, her close relationship with her mother, who's a psychotherapist, through the prism of mythology. She talks about mythology in, in, in her relationship with her mom. And it's, it's true that... Um, you know, we we do mythologize our mothers. And I, I love that, you know, that essay is certainly speaking directly to her mother. All of these essays are. That's a common thread, mm-hmm. especially even to the mothers who are no longer alive, like Dylan's essay and Brandon's essay. Yeah. There's a bit in Alexander Chi's essay when he says, I wonder what would have happened if I had said something then. And some of these writers, again, will never say the unsaid to their mothers because they've died. I think you even do that in your essay. You sort of imagine what your mother was like before she met your stepfather. There's a way that these essays become an exercise of power where there was powerlessness Am I stabbing at something or is that something you, that you see? No, you, you absolutely are. And I think a good example of that is um, 
Leslie Jameson's essay uh, at the very end of the book about her very close relationship with her mother um, was written shortly after Leslie gave birth to her child. And in her piece, she tries to understand who her mom was before she became her mom by reading an unpublished manuscript that her mother's first husband wrote based on their marriage, this novel that never got published. And so that essay is all about trying to understand who a mom is before she becomes the mother. Mm. Uh, And I think all of us are are often wondering that. What was our mother like? Were they the same? Did they change by having me? It's so hard to imagine your mom without you, right? But it's it's really, really hard. It it reminds Uh, me a little of that. Do you remember, do you ever read that Sharon Olds poem where she's writing about her parents as students, you know, meeting in college and saying, like, stop, (laughs) you know, don't do it. (laughs) It's a terrible mistake. But then... um, but then she says, but I don't stop them because I want to live. You know, it's it's a wonderful. Oh, I love Sharon Olds. Yeah, it's great. great. And, and um, you know, there's a there's like, if our mothers didn't exist, neither would we. Right. Exactly. So it is in a lot of ways our most important relationship. Right. Even if we've never had a relationship with our mom, it is a crucial, vital relationship, our reason for our existence in the first place. Well, you write it so beautifully. Our mothers are our first homes, and that's why we're always trying to return to them. What, what does that mean to you now, you know, a couple years after you read that, you wrote that? Well, for me, things are really complicated uh, with my own mother right now. Um, so I'm hoping that we can work through the pain <laughs> Um, and that this book will ultimately lead to some healing for us and that we can communicate in a way we haven't been able to communicate so far. That's my biggest hope for this book. Um, I don't know whether that will happen or not, but I certainly wrote this essay and compiled this anthology and edited this anthology from a place of deep longing for a a better relationship with my mother, who I do love. Mm. So it's a painful day for you coming up on Mother's Day. And for many people whose mothers have passed down or were never present to begin with, what do you plan to do, Michelle? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, You know, on Mother's Day, I typically try to avoid Facebook just because it's (laughs) a parade, as you mentioned earlier, it's a parade of people posting, you know, tributes to their moms, which is wonderful. And I'm so happy for people who do have great relationships or did have great relationships with their moms. I think I will probably be avoiding Facebook on that day for self-care. And, you know, I'm actually going to be doing an event in Minneapolis that day, a panel for this book um, at the Wordplay Literary Festival. So that is what I'm going to do on Mother's Day this year is hopefully speak to an audience that um, needs to hear about, about the stories, the essays in this book. Well, congratulations on the book, Michelle. Thank you so much. Michelle Philgate, she's editor of What My Mother and I Don't Talk About. It's an anthology of essays by some really engaging contemporary writers about their relationships with their mothers. There's more in the book at gpbnews.org. And I just did look up the name of that poem by Sharon Olds. It's called I Go Back to May 1937. Stay with us. There's more on Second Thought coming up after a short break. 
This is On Second Thought from JPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. This Sunday is Mother's Day, and we want to take a moment to recognize a species that proliferates in communities across the state. Football Mamas, a stalwart source of support for high school teams. GPB's John Nelson introduces us to one of these unsung heroes. It's a job Rachel Weber has had for nearly 20 years. In addition to being a middle school teacher in Zebulon, she's the wife of Pike County Pirates head coach Brad Weber. That makes her the team's football mama, playing a special role in the lives of all of her players. It's being part den mother, part grade A listener, full-time counselor, part or full-time cheerleader and program promoter. Now Rachel's role as a source of support for the team and the community came front and center last season after the death of Pike County High School student Dylan Thomas. He collapsed on the field during a football game, and the season went on. I talked with Rachel about how she views her role as mama of the team. It's honestly an honor to be able to be a coach's wife. I feel like um, just because there's a lot of hard work put into it, but to see Brad come home in the evening and talk about his players, about how well they're doing, you know, especially when he gets them in ninth grade, you know, he has a lot of work to do and the coaches have a lot of work to do with them. But then to see the finished product four years later, is just unbelievable. And it's, um, I mean, I don't know, it, it just, it's good for the heart, you know, to see that, you know, you're actually, you're taking the time with these um, guys and you're mentoring these guys and to see the finished product. It's not just about throwing the football on Friday night, making the tackle, making the touchdown. I mean, we love that, of course, but it's also the characteristics you see in these boys and their personal qualities that you see, how they grow over the four years is just, it's a huge accomplishment. And to be a part of that is just, uh, it can be overwhelming at times, but it's a great feeling. When you started seeing Brad and when you started to, when you were married and got into the relationship with him, did you know what you were getting into as a coach's wife? I had no idea. Um, I was always brought up in sports and football. Uh, My brother was a quarterback. I was a cheerleader. Um, We've always been big followers of football. um, And I've always been active in sports, but it is totally different being active and also being married to a um, spouse, you know, a coach's wife in football. It's um, totally different than what I think anybody could prepare you for. And I remember when I met him and I was telling my girlfriends about him, they're like, oh, you don't want to marry him. He's a great guy, but he's married to coach and I thought what does that actually mean so over the you know so many years um you know passed back I mean 18 years now I definitely know what they mean um but no I had no idea what I was getting myself into but it's been a great uh, it's been a great learning experience and a fun learning experience as well so then let me ask you this I know that there's no such thing as a typical work week during right. football seasons let's say from mid-August through mid-December right how do you balance your time being a mom being a team mom being a part of the program and also having a job there in Pike County at the middle school right right you know it's all about balance it's all about um, honestly um, it's and you know what it's not just from August to December because even even like right now, I mean, literally they are in there, you know, they're every day they have a weight train and, you know, and if they don't have a weight training after school, um, you know, Brad's out there trying to recruit some of his uh, classmen that are going to be going to college. So it's more than just a few months out of the year. People always think, oh, you know, December's here. What are you guys going to do? Well, we do get a little bit of, you know, slow down, but the same token, he's getting ready for that next season. So it's like, it's one of those that you, you really,
really never, he never steps away from it. However, we do have, you know, some more time right now. But, I mean, a typical night right now is him getting home 6 o'clock. But, you know, I think it's just something that I've learned to, um, over the years, I've learned to live like that. Um, and I also I teach um, at our college here. Um, I teach online, so that keeps me busy. But just being able to balance everything and um, manage it, our time together, that's very important. So it's just a, all about balancing um, the, the children, which our children are older now. We have one that will be a, a senior, a upcoming senior next year that will be playing football. So it definitely has gotten easier as the children have gotten older. So, um, you know, when they're younger, it is a little bit harder. But still, it's all about balancing. And, and, you know, I mean, honestly, putting God first. And if you put God first, then everything else is going to um, manage to work its way um, to come together. All right. So one of the toughest stories that we all knew about here in the here really for anybody who followed high school football in the United States last year was what happened with Dylan Thomas and Dylan's yeah. family with Dylan last year. My first question is, how is everybody? You know, um, it's, I hope I don't get <clears throat> sorry. It's still hard. Um, there's some days that are harder than others. Um, like this last week was our spring break, and his dad literally would take Dylan and our son was one of them, a group of about four to six young men to the Gulf, and he would take them fishing. So, um, you know, we rode by their house the other day. We were going to Noonan, and we passed by their house. And, you know, it's just those moments, those quiet moments that you think of Dylan. And, you know, it's all, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sugarcoat. It's hard. I, I can't um, imagine how they're still handling all of this. Um, Brad talks to um, Darren quite often, um, and they're, you know, they're managing, um, the team's managing, and, you know, we'll ask Walker, our one that's going to be a senior that was um, very, very close with Dylan, you know, how's he, you know, how are you doing? And, you know, honestly, it's a day by day. I mean, there's certain things, um, I teach at the high school, there's certain times when you can tell the students may be thinking about him, or, you know, they'll ask questions about Dylan, and we still have Dylan Strong um, uh, signs throughout our hallway, you know, on my door, there's like two Dylan Strong signs. I mean, he's always going to be a part of us, and, you know, you just have those moments. Um, Some days are a lot easier than other days for me, Um, but, you know, we're all dealing with it, and again, our faith, I I mean, it honestly helps you get through that, knowing that um, Dylan uh, was, personally, he was saved, and just knowing that, you know, right now, he's in heaven with God. I mean, he's having the best football game ever. I mean, that does help people. Helps me, I know, for sure, get through it. Um, You know, and some of our players next year, I mean, they've already dedicated, of course, their next season, because they would have all been seniors to Dylan. So, just living up to that, those expectations, and, you know, what would Dylan want the players to do, you know, and what would Dylan want um, each, everybody, you know, that he knew, what would he want you to do? I know he doesn't want us to, you know, waller, waller and grief, but the same token, we do have those moments where, you know, it's, it's just difficult because, you know, losing any, any um, student or any um here is very hard, but just the circumstances just makes it that much, you know, more difficult. But, you know, it's like his dad said, he was out there doing what he loved to do, you know. I mean, if he had to be taken away from us, at least he was doing one of the love of his life. He loved football and he loved hunting and fishing. So, you know, he was doing what he wanted to do, but it is still hard. And, you know, I know next year is going to be even, you know, more difficult just because it was going to be his senior year. So, as you can tell, I mean, you just, we have those moments and Brad has those moments, you know, it's just, you know, you just 
wish things could have definitely been different, but they're not, and so you just have to make the most of it. And so. yeah, and when you're when you're a, a, the, the wife of the head coach in this situation, I think I would think that a lot of folks come to you looking for just a, even as something as simple as a sounding board in these situations, even today. Uh, what's it like, once again, being the point of that pyramid where you're a part of a society with all of the team moms, regardless of it's a, if it's a player, just a fan, if it's another a coach, but what, what has it been like for you since last season seeing Pike County football go through this, see Pike County go through this, see Brad go through this, and see your family go through this, and you as the, coach's, as the head coach's wife? You know, we've just been so very fortunate to live in um, this community where, honestly, um, they have been so supportive. I mean, honest, I mean, we've had people that we don't even know reach out to us, um, reach out to his family, you know, reach out to the football players. I mean, it's just been phenomenal, and it honestly, it has helped get through that because – and our faith again, you know, having that faith, knowing where he's at, um, and just people, you know, just sitting down and listening, or you know, sitting down and talking to the students about it, or reaching out to the students. You know, um, we've had we had this one gentleman who wanted to donate a, a very beautiful bench to the school in honor of Dylan. You know, I mean, there's just been so many different things that help with that grieving process because it's it's really been tough, and you know, having people that you can lean on, or having people that reach out to you during this time. It does help, especially with our students. I really feel like it helps them a lot as well. Um, you know, and I had somebody say, well, are you going to let your son play this year? And, you know, I said, well, it's tough. I mean, it's tough every year, regardless of this. But when this happens to you, you know, it hits home and it happens to you. It happens to your son, one of your son's best friends. You know, I'll tell you, um, Dylan's dad said it best. He said, boys, do not let this stop you from playing. He said, you are at more risk getting into the car every day, driving to and from school, and I thought, you know what, he really has a point there. I mean, there are so many risks with everything um, involved today with our, you know, kids, and, you know, just knowing um, that, I mean, this couldn't have been avoided. I mean, this was just a time and thing, and, you know, just the people that have come out and supported us, and, it's, I mean, that's right there, just speaks volumes. Our community has gone above and beyond what they needed to do, and that, you know, you still see the Dylan Strong signs. I was in Williamson yesterday, um, and I still saw the Dylan Strong, just knowing that they're still there, and they still, you know, they'll ask, how's the family doing, and how are people doing, just knowing that they care, you know, that, that it's really helped a lot. It really has. What advice would you give to the coach's wife who is, you know, mid-20s in her, you know, she's married, she's in this relationship with right. her young husband. Is there any advice that you would give or have given to those younger coaches' wives who are just starting out being like you? Yeah, just, you know, be patient. Know that it's going to take a lot of time away. Um, but if you generally care and love your spouse, you're going to want to see them grow. You're going to want to see them fulfill their dream and prosper. I mean, I know this was his ultimate dream was to be a head coach one day. And I knew that going into it. I really knew that. Um, and just to see him be so happy and fulfill his dream. I mean, that's what we're here for, you know, is to 
fill our um, fill the dreams that we have for ourselves and our spouse and our family. So you know, just be patient. These young coaches' wives, eventually, I'm sure they're going to have families, and that will take you know a lot of their time away too. So you just have to be patient and just look at the big picture. You know, is this what's making your spouse happy? Is this what's making you happy? So you know, um, you know, and you'll love these kids. Take these kids, these football players. Treat them as they're your own. I mean, I'm telling you, there's nothing better when they graduate and they go to college and then they come home and guess who? They come to see you and it makes you feel so great. Like, wow, I actually had a role in helping this student or had a role in helping them prosper. You know, it's the best thing when they come back home or, you know, you get a quick email or a text, how's it going? Happy birthday. You know, thank you for all you've done. I mean, it's in the end, it's all worth it. It really is. And you being a teen mom, being there for your husband, those boys see it and they know that you're not just supporting their husband, your husband, you're supporting them as well. There's nothing, that's the greatest feeling. And there's nothing better than Friday Night Lights out there cheering them on. That was Rachel Weber. For nearly 20 years, she served as football mama for Pike County High School. Rachel spoke with John Nelson for Football Fridays in Georgia podcast. And you can subscribe to that and all of our podcasts for free at gpb.org slash podcasts. Agnes Scott College Indicator says it's on a mission to reinvent liberal arts education. What's also evolving on this historic women's campus? Concepts of gender. It's a lot of change for a private school of about a thousand students. The woman tasked with leading these transition is the new president, Lee Zak. She served as U.S. Trade and Development Agency Director under former President Barack Obama. GPB's Ricky Bevington recently sat down with Zak and some students and asked about the future of liberal arts in a world focused on STEM. Well, we like to think about it as STEM has now evolved into STEAM, which includes the arts. So that's exactly what we have here. We have we, classics, we have English, but we also have bioscience majors, we have neuroscience majors, we have astronomers. So a liberal arts college has it all. At Agnes Scott College, liberal arts education is changing. Next month's graduation will include the first class of students to complete four years of a new supplemental program infused with the school's standard curriculum. It's called Summit. Our faculty and staff reinvented liberal arts. So it is an opportunity for our students to focus on leadership development and also global learning. In their first year, students take an eight-day guided trip abroad with classmates and professors after several months of study. Destinations have included Northern Ireland, Ghana, and Belize. It's not tourist travel. It's focused on a topic and focused on something that they have studied before and that they have an opportunity to reflect on afterwards. The summit curriculum helped earn Agnes Scott the number one ranking of innovative liberal arts colleges from U.S. News & World Report last year. According to the National Association of Foreign Student Advisors, fewer than 2% of U.S. college students study abroad, At Agnes Scott College, it's 100%, and it's part of students' $41,000 tuition. Agnes Scott was founded in 1889 as a women's college. Today, its admissions policy is more broad. It states, The college admits students who are assigned female at birth, as well as those who are assigned male or female at birth, but now identify as female, transgender, agender, gender-fluid, or non-binary. Student health insurance plans help cover gender reassignment treatment. For many parents going through the college decision process with their teenager, talking about gender identity is uncharted territory. What do you say to parents? 
I would say to the parents to allow the students to be their guide, that this is looking toward where the future is, the world that we live in, and that we are creating an environment that represents that world. Conversations about diversity at Agnes Scott expand beyond gender. People of color make up more than half the student body, including freshman Nika Jones. I see it in the classroom. Um, I see it in my professors. I see it in the variety of organizations and clubs that we have. Basically, there's a place on campus for every single person here. President Zach says as the world becomes more competitive, teaching future generations to find their place is increasingly important. I think our students just have so much more responsibility than when we went to school. They also see a world around them that has also seen change as well, and they have concerns um, about that world. That was GPB's Ricky Bevington speaking with Lee Zach, new president of Agnes Scott College. GPB Education's latest virtual field trip starts tomorrow morning at 10. Tens of thousands of students from all over the country will learn about engineering design as they explore Georgia Tech's Invention Studio. It is the largest student-run makerspace in the world. The Flowers Invention Studio here at Georgia Tech houses over 25 different machines and more than 60 machines in total. So this is the water jet. The water jet is really useful in cutting through hard materials like steel, or it can cut through stone like uh, quartz or marble. Essentially the way it works is it shoots really high pressured water and an abrasive called garnet. Uh, it's kind of like a sand material. And the combination of the two are strong enough to pierce through whatever material you have and go along the path that you want. Yeah, so this place can get crazy busy. We're open Monday through Friday, and there's people constantly working on school projects, personal projects, and art projects all the time. That was from GPB Education's latest live virtual field trip to Georgia Tech's Invention Studio. You can see it in full at gpb.org invention. And no permission slip is required. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and The Raven Taylor. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer, and Don Smith our editor. Amy Kiley is senior producer, and Sarah Shariari is managing editor of GPB News. I'm Virginia Prescott. See you tomorrow.